Jag vet inte hur många selskaper jag har mött som sliter med att få in professionella investorer till trots för att produkten egentligen är ganska bra och selskapet visar växt och goda tal. Vi säger en ting de proffsiga investorerna på utsikter i tillägg att du bygger ett bra selskap självklart är hur du hanterar dina aktionärer eller ditt så kallade cap table som det heter på startupsk. Ett ödelagt cap table sätter rätt och slett en stopper för selskapsutveckling. Unlisted.ai gör det möjligt för selskaper att hantera aktie- och optionsprogrammer, aktieägarboken, cap table och det mesta av rättigheter in mot aktierna i selskapet på ett sted. Pröv Unlisted.ai sin gratisversion idag. Idag är er vi så heldige att ha författare, grunder, adfärdsdesigntänker Nir Eyal på besök i Shifters podcast. Nir är er nämligen Norges aktuell då han kommer för att hålla föredrag på Corporate Innovation Day under Oslo Innovation Week. Du kan därför se ham 20 oktober och har du ikke billett, så är er du faktiskt lite heldig för hvis du brukar koden Shifter så får du rabatt. Alltså sök upp Corporate Innovation Day hos Abelia och när du ska betala så välj partnerkode och koden Shifter. Nir är er också investor och har bland annat investerat i norska Kahoot. I podcasten snackar vi om bakgrundans, vi snackar lite om hukmodellans och hur man applicerar den och vi er också inom hvorfor han investerade i Kahoot. Hvis du jobbar med innovation, enten som grunder eller i en större bedrift, så anbefaler vi dig att höra på den episoden. Nok mas fra mig, här är er Nir. So Nir, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. So I started out in the gaming and advertising industry many years ago, and uh, in those two industries, I I had the the vantage point of seeing a lot of different experiments being run. I, I I worked with advertisers, I worked with gaming companies, and I saw them using different tactics and uh, and and persuasive techniques to get people to do things. Uh, these two industries are masters of mind control, and so from that vantage point, I learned a lot about how companies change our behavior. And uh, after my last company was acquired, I had some time on my hands, and I could. I, I could analyze what I learned in those two industries, and what I decided to do was to distill down these lessons on how to persuade people through products, specifically, uh, so that all sorts of people in, in all sorts of different industries could use these same techniques for good, right? So that it doesn't have to be social media and games and advertisers that use these techniques. My hope is that we can use these same exact techniques that get people to repeatedly check apps and games and uh, et cetera to, to use that those same techniques to help people build healthy habits in their lives uh, with the products that they use. Cool. Um, so uh, let's dive into the model. Uh, the, you call it the hook model. And uh, what is it and why should anyone creating products uh, care about this model? Sure. So the idea behind the hook model is that if you're building a product that requires unprompted engagement, if you want people to come back to your product or service on their own, right? meaning that you don't have to spend money on advertising and you don't have to send them a bunch of spammy messages, if you want to create that, if you have that goal of getting people to check their this product, the app, the website, whatever it might be, on their own, out of habit, well, then you've got to create a hook. And by the way, not every business needs to form a habit. There's lots of ways to bring people back. It's just that if your business model depends on a habit, just like some of the most groundbreaking companies of the past decade, when you think about Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Snapchat and Slack, all of these <laughs> companies, fundamentally at their core, they built user habits. If they can't create a user habit, they die. They go out of business. So if you're in that kind of business, if you require people to form these habits – 
well, then you've got to have a hook. And a hook has four basic parts. I'll give you the... Could, could, could I interrupt you a little bit sure. there? Yeah. Because, yeah. Uh, uh, because uh, so you're saying that uh, there's a certain type of products that are dependent on habits. Right. Not, every not every type of product. Is that correct? Right, exactly. Not every business needs a habit, right? You can bring people back with ads. You can bring people back with search engine optimization. Uh, you, can, uh, you can open up a physical storefront, right? You just open up a shop uh, on the corner. None of those businesses necessarily have to have a habit. I see. So, But the, those big businesses like Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, they're dependent on you having a habit because it's otherwise it's too expensive to actually to advertise to get you back in is that right. correct exactly their business models couldn't support can you imagine if if facebook had to set to pay an ad to bring you back to the site every time they'd go out of business they just can't afford yep. to do that hmm. okay so uh let's go into models sorry sorry for interrupting oh, no i love it please do do, do it more <laughs> um, so the model basically i'll give you the very quick overview of the hook model uh, there's a lot more in my book, by the way, so I'm, I'm kind of butchering it here by, by running through it quickly for the sake of, of the show. But basically, the, the, the uh, hook model has these four basic steps of a trigger, an action, a reward, and an investment. So triggers, there are two types. Uh, the one that most people are familiar with is the external trigger, which is something that tells the user what to do next with some piece of information. So it's a call to action like click here or buy now or play this, anything that tells you what to do next. Uh, internal triggers we'll get back to in just a minute. The next step of the hook after the external trigger, so let's say in the case of Facebook, you get a notification, you get an email that says, hey, check out what's going on on Facebook. The action is the simplest behavior in anticipation of a reward. It's something as easy as clicking on a button or uh, playing a YouTube video or uh, a quick search on Google. These incredibly simple actions we do with little or no conscious thought. Then comes the variable reward. And the variable reward is where the user's itch is scratched, but it leaves them wanting more. There's something more that they want to explore, uh, and that's where the variability comes in. So this comes from some very old research from B.F. Skinner back in the 1950s around how when a reward is given on a variable schedule of reinforcement, we become more engaged. It's more habit-forming when there's variability involved. And we so, can talk so more about that, too. Yeah, and by my variability, you mean that uh, it's not predictable what is going to happen, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, 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 some, that's very fascinating about how all sorts of products, both online and offline, using some bit of mystery, some bit of variability, uh, actually increase the rate of response. It's almost like a slot machine-like effect. And when you scroll on your Facebook newsfeed or on Twitter or on Slack, any number of these different services today, uh, and it's not just online, by the way. What makes sports fun, right? Why do we watch a, a football game? Uh, what makes uh, romance interesting? What makes a novel or a television show worth watching is the variability, is the uncertainty. What's going to happen next? That's at the core of all these products that are so habit-forming. Yeah. So, so Google, you mentioned Google in your book as mm -hmm. a habit-forming product. Right. But um, is Google actually, is, is this, yeah, you probably you probably wouldn't know the the search result, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, right. you wouldn't be searching. But but still, you're you know you're seeking to to uh, to solve a problem, right? Right? Exactly. Uh, exactly. Uh, like you know, in, in in for Facebook, you're not actually solving. You're not solving a specific problem. You're, 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 well, you're curing boredom, maybe, right? Exactly, but, exactly. I would say that's a very pertinent problem. So the internal trigger, let's do the, let's do the hook for both of those companies since you mentioned mm -hmm. them. So for Facebook, the problem, it's funny that you say it's not a problem. I think it's one of the greatest problems that human beings have had for the past 200,000 years mm 
And that is seeking social connection. We are a tribal species. We do not like to be lonely. When we are left alone, we die. Literally. We become depressed and we die. So people need each other. They need social connection. Uh, and what Facebook does is give people the social connection across uh, thousands of miles from each other. And so that's the itch. The itch is the internal trigger for someone using a product like Facebook uh, is this need for connection. Uh, on Google, it's uncertainty. It's I don't know the answer to something. Where do I go get it? Uh, the action is to open the app or in the, case of, uh, in the case of Facebook. In the case of Google, it might be do a quick search result. And the variable reward on Facebook is what's posted, right? What's going on on Facebook as you scroll the feed? On Google, it's where is my search result? And there's, of course, variability there, right? You're hunting uh, in those search results for which one of these links is going to give me the answer I'm looking for. Hmm. But uh, what if there's something that you are that you know you're looking for in Google, right? Some sometimes I, you know, search for a recipe and I know I know which site has it and I know exactly which uh, recipe it is. Right. But I use Google, use Google instead of going into the sites because Google is actually a better search. Right. It's, it's that, so so that, sometimes products want to insert variability and other times they operate in conditions that are inherently variable. So in the case of Google, searching for something is inherently variable. It's, it, there's always this question of where's that thing that I'm looking for, right? That's mm, always yeah. variable. And the uncertainty is how do I get to it? How do I, you know, how do I find it as quickly as possible? So sometimes companies would want to add uncertainty. For example, if the internal trigger, if the itch is, uh, is boredom, well, then you want to insert variability to entertain. But if the internal trigger is uncertainty, you wouldn't necessarily want to insert variability because it's already variable. So instead what you do, you give the user greater agency, greater control over something that's inherently variable. So the example here is, look, if your laptop suddenly crashed, right, that's yeah. variable. That's a surprise. But yeah. of course, that's not very engaging. That's not fun. We hate that because even <laughs> though it's variable, you have no control over it. Mm. So where there's a situation that's inherently variable, for example, in the case of Google or, or Uber, for like an Uber cab, for example, uh, it's already variable. So what the company would want to do is add greater agency and control over something that's already variable. I see. So, uh, so that, that's the reward, and what, what happens after the reward? Right, and so finally the investment. The investment is where the user puts something into the product in anticipation of a future benefit. So something that makes the product better with use and loads the next trigger. So something that brings the user back uh, with use by, by making it better and better and better with use. So on Facebook, every time you... Uh, like, every time you comment, every time you submit a photo, uh, every time you give them any data, anytime you accrue friends, all of those things that you're doing are forms of investment, both passively investing as well as actively investing in the site. On Google, it's the fact that when you search, you're telling the, 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 the search engine, uh, based on your clicks, what you're interested in, what how to improve your results. And in fact, the evidence that that's the case, if you log out of Google or if you go into Google on incognito mode, uh, you can act, you'll actually see very different results than when Google knows who you are because they've built a profile, they're collecting data about you, making your search results better with use versus when you go incognito and they don't know who you are, you'll see totally different search results. Um, so that's an example of investment. The more you use the product, the better it gets. And this is a really big deal. That yeah, but... Property, I, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> that, that property is something that you... You, you, is very difficult to replicate in offline products. 
in that most offline products, things in the physical world made out of atoms as opposed to bits, they depreciate, they lose value with use, right? So your clothing, your chair, your table, everything that you use loses value. But the amazing part of these habit-forming technologies is that they, they do the opposite. They appreciate in value because of the data that we're putting into them, the followers, the reputation that we're uh, uh, accruing on these platforms. They get better and better with use. So how how crucial is uh, is it um, uh, the difference between between this being, you know, explicit, like, uh, you know, Gmail, mm -hmm. when, you know, that's, you know, when you, when you write an email and you get it, also, when you, when you store more data, it gets more valuable, right? right. That's, uh, that's, that's very explicit, I would say, you know, mm -hmm. because you can see it, but when, when Google uses your clicks to refine or to, to better your search results, mm -hmm. it's implicit. You, you don't right. see it, but you just, you know, it's just better. Mm -hmm. What is, is there a difference uh, there uh, between, you know, in, on the, on the effect of creating a habit? Well, it, it depends on the product. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it, there's no, there's no rule that applies across all products. I think it's the, the principle more than the application of, uh, you know, is this better or that better? I think the, the answer is, do do it all <laughs> yeah, if you okay. can it, you know very yeah. few companies have the luxury to 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 do uh more than one of these uh these investment techniques what i see much more frequently is that companies don't ask for investment at all uh the the traditional orthodoxy around how we build products specifically online products is you know we just get the user to check out as quickly as possible right get to your yeah. cart give us your money and get out of here and that's a mistake because we mm. focus so much on checking out And we need to focus more on checking in. So, uh, so checking out is a tip, typical checking out places, uh, you know, uh, e-commerce site, right? Right. Or, right. Um, web shop. And um, could you create a habit, you know, habit uh, producing uh, or uh, web shop? Is that possible? Is, Absolutely. Have, I think yeah. the 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 best example is Amazon. Uh, hmm. Amazon is destroying. Uh, All of its competition. <laughs> I mean, yeah. absolutely decimating the competition. I just saw a report actually yesterday that showed that 50% of consumers, when they shop for anything online, go to Amazon first. Hmm. So yeah. that, I mean, it, an, everybody who sells stuff should be freaking out right now. <laughs> Because <laughs> Amazon has captured the habit even away from Google. People will mm. go to Amazon.com before they go to Google.com or Bing.com when they need to buy a product. 50% of consumers, I think this was only in the United States, but that's, that's phenomenal. And, and if you think about it, Amazon is mm. no longer competing with no. the habit of shopping at its competitors. They actually don't even care about Walmart anymore. The habit mm. they're going for is to capture the habit of writing on your shopping list. Think mm. about that. They, what they want is for, to make it easier to use the Amazon services, not just the app, the Amazon services, so that it's even easier than just writing down what you want to buy so that you'll go buy it later. And the, the evidence for this is look at their strategy over the past few years between the amazing ease of buying on the Amazon app. Let's start there. 
And then we have the Amazon Dash button, which if you haven't seen is tremendous. I remember a couple of years ago, uh, mm. not a year, about a year and a half ago, April 1st of last year, they had this button uh, that they that they that they revealed, and everybody in, in the United States that's that we have that day is uh, April Fool's Day, where people play jokes on each other that day, and everybody thought that it was a joke. It's not a joke. It's it's a, it's it's genius. What they're doing is that they're making it so that you can buy a product that you regularly uh, purchase by not having to go online at all. You just push literally one button, and diapers will come to your door the next day. Uh, yeah. Then, then you've got the Amazon Alexa, right? The Echo device, where it's all voice-driven. You just say, uh, you know, Alexa, order me more diapers, and boom, it's it's on its way. So they are really in competition with this old habit of the shopping list, not even their competitors anymore. So online retail, uh, it, you know, it, it it must form a habit, or else you're in big trouble. So let's say uh, you start a, you became a CEO of a online retail store tomorrow. Uh, what what would you do uh, when you have you know comp- competitors like Amazon? Uh, try and sell to Amazon would be a good first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I I think you've got to form. A, I think you have to change the mindset of um, uh, of how we interact with consumers. I think if 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 you're under the impression that all we have to do is to make a great product and that's good enough, you're in for a big surprise because it's not the best products that win. There is no rule, there's no 11th commandment that says the best product wins. It's not the best product that wins. It's the product that captures the monopoly of the mind, the first-to-mind solution. That's who wins the market. So, so if, so sorry, but so if uh, Amazon has the monopoly of the mind uh, for e-commerce, it would be ludicrous to start... Uh, well, on lunch, right? well, that that war is still being waged, and we I don't I, I think it it might be too late for certain categories of products. For example, books too late. Yeah. Uh, that that habit is already taken for. Um, but you know, not necessarily with every vertical. There might be other products that that uh, you can do a better job of of uh, forming a consumer habit around. But if you think that you can just sell stuff online and people will magically find you when they remember you, uh, I think those days are quickly numbered. Uh, hmm. So instead, what I would recommend doing. The, the problem is that for many companies, using their product, buying the product is just not frequent enough. So the, the, the bar that I talk about in the book is that your product has to be used within a week's time or less, or it's not going to become a habit. So that's, that's why Amazon is so smart to become the everything store, because they don't want you to use them just when you need books. They want you to use them any time you need anything. So in San Francisco, I mean, this is really, you know, one of their testing grounds. I mean, here in San Francisco, I use Amazon for my groceries. I use Amazon for my movies. I use Amazon for literally anything I can buy on Amazon, I buy on Amazon. By the way, I'm a shareholder uh, as well. I love the company, Uh, just for (laughs) for sake of full disclosure. Um, So... So, you know, what that means is for, for somebody who's selling anything online, uh, it can't just be about your products anymore, okay? No. If your product is not something that people use it within a week's time or less, and, and look, most products bought online are not things people buy uh, within a week's time or less, you've got a few choices. And I, I think here, here are the three choices you have. I think one is to figure out how to get out of that business, right? So that, that's the worst case scenario is to figure out, look, if your product is just not going to be consumed frequently, uh, there's a good chance that somebody else is going to eat your lunch unless you figure out how to, how to uh, move out of that, of, that, of that habit. The other two options, which are probably more palatable to people, is to either build content or community 
around your product. What does that mean? Yeah. So if your product is not something that can become a habit in itself, if it's not used frequently to become a habit, don't even try to make using the product a habit. What you can do instead is to build a community around that habit. So for example, there's a, there's a, this is a, an American-centric uh, example, but it's the best one I can think of. There's a, there's a very old company called Hallmark uh, in the United States that makes mm-hmm. ornaments, Christmas ornaments. Now, this yeah. is not a frequently bought product, right? People buy Christmas ornaments once a year. But what Hallmark has done for, for years and years now is uh, they have what's called the Hallmark Keepsake Ornament Club. And this club has over 300,000 members. It's a huge club. And what's interesting about this club is that the ornaments are just the tool, the center piece for what people really want, which is to connect to other human beings. So these people who are collectors of these ornaments, they get together at the stores, they communicate over email, they're in touch all the time out of habit, right? That's the habit, which then, of course, you know, when it is time to buy ornaments, they, they buy tons of them. Uh, but really, what the purpose of this club is to give people a community. That's what really the product is about. The other example is content. So there's this explosion right now in content marketing where companies are figuring out that, look, as there's more, uh, there's more uh, ability to reach people who are interested in what, in what you do, uh, they're looking to consume out of habit, right? So uh, interesting articles, lifestyle pieces, even news, uh, there's so many places to find that information now, and yet it's still not enough, right? So companies are finding that they can do a great job of keeping people engaged with content so that the result of that engagement will eventually be monetization. So if you can create content, if you can uh, host a community, you can build a habit around your product as opposed to making a habit of your product. So you're saying that we're in we're in the era that where we we could probably call it the end of product or the product just gets you to the start line and then you have then actually you have to build you know building the best habit is actually what will differentiate you and and uh, uh, and uh, make you win the, the competition. Right. I, I just think that, you know, having a, pr- a storefront online is a very old, uh, antiquated model, right? That if you think that, uh, you know, in the, in the offline world, all, all you have to do is open up a store and people will walk by your store and buy stuff. Well, that doesn't work online anymore. And the reason it doesn't work online anymore is because people forget you exist, Right. For that simple fact. So if you can't create a habit, if you can't get them to prompt themselves to come back, that means you're you're going to have to spend money to acquire those people forever. You're either going to have to spend money uh, by sending them, you know, sending them messages. You're going to have to spend money by renting advertising space on somebody else's site. Uh, So that's so that's not necessarily a bad thing. If your business model can afford it, you know, that's not a problem. I'm just saying that if you don't form a habit, you're competitively at threat, right? That somebody else can come in and take that customer away pretty easily from you if you don't form a habit. Yeah. So, um, so how could uh, how could startups leverage this? Yeah. So the best thing to do is if your product requires a habit, if it's a pro- if it's a product that necessitates frequently uh, users frequently using that product and coming back on their own. The best thing you can do is to take out the hook model, that four-step process I I described earlier, uh, and that's detailed in my book. And with just a pencil and paper, you can sit down and ask yourself these five fundamental questions of what's the internal trigger, what's the external trigger, 
What's the simplest behavior the user does in anticipation of reward? Is the reward fulfilling and yet leaves the user wanting more? And then finally, what's the investment that the user makes to make it more likely for them to return in the future? By asking yourself those five fundamental questions, you can save yourself a lot of headache, a lot of wasted time, and a lot of wasted money by making sure you have a hook before you build anything, right? Before you spend any money on design or on code, uh, do you have a hook? If you don't have a hook, you're not going to form a consumer habit. So how do you know if you have a good hook? So, okay. So how do you have a good hook? That's, that's where you have to get out of the building. What I find most often is that co companies haven't even answered the question of if they have a hook at all. Uh, <laughs> so the first step is to make sure you have a hook at all, conceptually speaking, and then, and then we got to go test, right? Then we have to go do what uh, Eric Reese and Steve Blank tell us. We have to go get out of the building. We have to build, measure, and learn to figure out If, if our assumptions are correct, right? Do we have good mm. internal triggers? Uh, is the action easy enough? Are the rewards rewarding? And is the user investing in a way that brings them back? So then you have to actually go build something and test those assumptions. Hmm. And uh, this applies uh, also for you know people working inside larger corporations with innovation because I, I assume that this is e actually easier for startups to do when they don't have the product, uh, you know, when they start from scratch than, you know, starting within the larger corporations with a lot of, you know, established culture and uh, routines way of doing things and maybe, you know, trying to convince that you have to do it in another way. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. So, so big companies are tricky, I will say. Um, I, I, but it's not just big companies. I think, you know, there's, there's two places where people tend to call me for consulting or for, to help them. Uh, very early days, right? So when it's, it's just an idea or maybe there's an early prototype that they have a lot of freedom and leeway to change the product. So they call me then to, to see how they can, you know, before they spend a lot of time and money on the product, how do they make sure it increases their odds of success? So that's, that's when I m most like to be involved. The other place that I get called in is uh, when typically a venture capitalist will call me and say, look, we, we just plowed a ton of money into this company. They were doing great. They were growing. They figured out how to make their product go viral. And then we put in the money into the, into the startup and nobody sticks around, right? Now it's a leaky bucket, meaning customers went in, but then customers went out. They're not engaged. They don't continue to use the product. And that's, that's, that's a sad time to come in because that's when, when I come in, I'm the plumber to, to stop the leaks. And what I have to do is to figure out which of those four things are missing, the trigger, the action, the reward, investment. And so the hook becomes a diagnostic tool, which is, which is very useful, right? Because if, if, if your product, let's say you have a product in market already that needs to become a habit, but users aren't engaged, they're not coming back, Well, then all you have to do is ask yourself those, those questions we talked about earlier about the hook, and you can hopefully diagnose what's wrong with your hook. And then, you know, I would say about 50-50%, you know, 50% of the time, we figure out, oh, here's what's missing. The, the, you know, there's something wrong with the trigger, the action, the reward, and the investment. We can fix it. But then about half of the time, I say, you know what, we're going to have to kill this horse because there's just, it's, it's too injured. We're not, it's not going to make it. Um, but that is also a good thing, right? So if I can save the company time and money not investing in something that's bound not to work that that's also a good thing yeah <laughs> so do you have a do you have a you have a story uh, where you have you know successfully you know uh, used this tool to 
to revive a product? So, so I've uh, put my money in my mouth where my mouth is with many products. So many times if I see a, a company uh, that comes to me for consulting services and I, and I really like the company, sometimes I will invest. <laughs> um, and so I, I've, I've made several investments now. Um, I've invested in Product Hunt, uh, Eventbrite, uh, a great product uh, in the psychotherapy space called Seven Cups. And of course, my, uh, my, my only investment uh, in the Scandinavian region is this company Kahoot, which I'm very proud to be a, an investor in as well. Hmm. And uh, Kahoot is uh, pretty well known in uh, in the Norwegian startup uh, community. And um, uh, I've I've talked to the CEO a couple of times, and, and a couple of weeks ago, the latest, we both had, held a presentation at an event, and uh, then he said from stage that. The investor he was the proudest of uh, having was you. Oh, that's uh, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, uh, yeah. So, uh, could you tell us how you did connect with Kahoot? So, uh, you know, I think I think uh, when we first connected, I think he had read my book uh, and he reached out, and it was it was very early days, and you know, he did what I love. He, what 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 really gets to my heart is when uh, an entrepreneur reads the book. And, you know, I, I tried to make the book very, very practical and, and really give step-by-step instructions on how to build your hook. And, uh, and that's exactly what Johan did. He, he worked through the exercises. He sent me his hook and said, look, here's how we use the hook. What do you think? And then I, you know, I, when he, he literally sent me a picture of his hook. You know, he, he wrote out all the four steps. He knew exactly what he was doing after read, reading the book. And then I jumped in and said, okay, this sounds great, but maybe we can adapt this. Or what about making this a little bit better? Uh, and I was so impressed with 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 how he took it to heart and and how solid his hook was that uh, that I asked if I could also become an investor. So how can uh, investors use this model to evaluate uh, future prospects? What I do, so I, I do uh, quite a bit of angel investing, and so when I look at a company. Um, habits and engagement is only one of three things that I look for. Uh, I also look for uh, what I call gems, and I'll actually be publishing this article. I haven't published this quite yet, but it'll be on my blog in the next uh, few weeks here if you subscribe to the blog. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I look for gems. GEM stands for growth, engagement, and monetization. Growth, engagement, monetization. So each of these three things is necessary but not sufficient. Uh, so growth has to do with uh, how you acquire new customers, right? How how good you are at finding people who need your product. Uh, engagement is all about what uh, what we've been speaking about so far. How do we uh, keep people coming back to our product and service? And then monetization is how do we how do we turn the value we create into cash? And is there enough of a market? potential out there to grow a big company. So engagement, everything about habits is only one of three necessary components. So I look for all three. But when it comes to engagement specifically, by looking through the lens of the hook model, uh, it's a pretty good way to filter out companies that uh, have no chance of of making a habit if they don't fill out those four quadrants of, of the hook. So it's it's a really good filter for me to look at a company that says, oh yeah, we're going to be as habit forming as you know Slack and Instagram and 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 WhatsApp or whatever. Uh, but if they can't tell me their hook, I I don't invest. Oh well, yeah, smart. So um, wh- what about the the ethics of the hook model? I mean, I read somewhere in your book that uh, uh, if it can't be used for uh, evil, it's not a superpower. Mm. And um, uh, and uh, understanding behavior and the power of habit can be used for bad, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think it, I think it can. And uh, I, I think that's uh, something that I'm, 
you know, concerned about enough that I wrote a whole chapter in the book called The Morality of Manipulation. And I talk about this ethical test uh, that I give to designers. So this is a, a, a test not for you to judge other people or for other people to judge you. It's just a test that I use. If you're a designer, if you're an entrepreneur or even an investor, uh, and you want to ask yourself, am I using this for good? Is this something that I'm uh, put, that I'm, 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 I'm spending my human capital, my limited time on earth wisely, then there's a two-part test. And the two-part test goes like this. The first part of the test is, am I doing something that materially improves people's lives? So when you look at yourself in the mirror uh, and you ask yourself, is what I'm working on, is this thing materially improving people's lives? Now, uh, only you can make that, that value judgment, but you know, that's, there's a yes or no answer that needs to come out of you for that. Is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? The next part of that question, that's not enough, by the way. That's, that's not enough of a test. The next part of the test is, am I the user? Am I the user? Now, why do I make people answer that second part of the, of the test? Because there's this rule about drug dealing. Do you happen to know the first rule of drug dealing? I don't want to put you on the spot here, but do you happen to know? Uh, don't do drugs? Well, close. Never get high <laughs> yeah. on your own supply. That's the okay. first rule of drug dealing. You never get high on your own supply. So I'm forcing people to break that rule, right? Mm. To break that rule. Why? Because if you are using the product yourself, you will be the first to know about any deleterious effects of the product. So I'm forcing you to break that rule. So if you are the kind of person who believes, number one, it's materially improving people's lives, and number two, you are also the user, you are what I call a facilitator. And I think that's a, mo a great moral place to be because you are building something for yourself that you believe materially improves people's lives. Now, when you look at the profile of all the companies I've just talked about, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Slack and WhatsApp, Google, every single one of them was started by a founder who did just that. They were building it for themselves and they believed it materially improved people's lives. And I think that's a very good moral position to be. Now, you can make money answering in the negative to, to either of those two questions, right? You don't have to necessarily, this isn't about can you make money or not money. That's not the question. The question is, where is a good ethical position to be? And I think that's, that's a good place for you to decide, is this a good way to implement uh, these, these mm. techniques yourself. Now, that doesn't necessarily tell us about how we judge other people's products because you know, the, the question that's probably on people's minds is to say, well, yeah, but aren't people addicted to Facebook, right? It's great that Mark Zuckerberg thinks he's helping people, but is he really? Aren't people, isn't this, uh, aren't people overusing Facebook and, and, and getting addicted to Facebook, et cetera? Well, I think that's a, that's a different question. And, and I would say that by and large, uh, these products have, have greatly enhanced our lives. And, and, and there's always kind of a backlash. There's always a, uh, uh, an adjustment period to any new technologies. But by and large, you know, people don't want to go back to the days before these technologies. But unfortunately, every time we have a new technology, there are always negative repercussions, right? The, the first person to invent the ship also invented the shipwreck. And, and I think what we're seeing is that there are, of course, negative consequences to using these technologies or using these technologies too much. And so what all of us have to do is to figure out how to put technology in its place. But I think for the vast majority of people, that's a personal responsibility issue, right? So, you know, if it's not Facebook, uh, it's not like if, if, if Facebook shut down tomorrow that we'd all go start reading Chaucer. People would watch television. They'd watch football. They'd, uh, they'd, they'd do other things uh, to be entertained, to spend their time uh, doing other things. And so 
I, I think that, that what we need to ask ourselves is, look, how do we put technology in its place? How do we get these technologies to serve us as opposed to serving them? But I think that's a, that's a personal question. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your insight on that. Sure. Um, uh, when you are, uh, this is the last question. <laughs> when, when you are out um, consulting, mm-hmm. what is the single largest problem you encounter uh, each time? You know, it, it, the, 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 the biggest problem I tend to see is that people don't consider uh, psychology at all. They think that if the product is technically better, if it's technologically superior, then it will gain greater market adoption. And that's just not true. Uh, that, that, like, you know, as, like, as I said before, there's no, there's no guarantee that the best product wins. So the biggest problem I see is that pe- people, you know, particularly companies run by engineers, uh, as opposed to people who understand consumer psychology, is they, they think that it's enough to just have a good product. But if you look at, you know, if, uh, Mark Zuckerberg had two majors before he dropped out of, of uh, Harvard. Uh, he was a computer science major and a psychology major. Kevin Systrom, the, the founder of Instagram, was a symbolic systems major at Stanford, which is a combination of computer science and psychology. Uh, you know, these people have backgrounds in psychology. They understand what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. And so I think that's the biggest problem I encounter is that, that people think, well, we, if we just make the product better, then that's enough. And that's not enough. You also have to understand how people work, their deeper psychology in order to make better products. Well, thank you very, very much, uh, Nir. It's been very, very interesting to uh, chat with you. And um, you will be in Oslo the 20th of October. I will. Uh, yeah. And uh, are you looking forward to it? Very much so. I can't wait. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, and uh, you will be at the event called Corporate Innovation Day during Oslo Innovation Week. And um, give us the pitch. Uh, what? Why should we have people come to there to see you? Well, uh, one, I'd love to see you there, first of all. That would be great. So as many people who could be there who are interested in using psychology to uh, change user behavior would be fantastic. And I'll be giving an overview of my model, but with, with a lot more depth than we talk about today. I'll be showing examples. I'll be showing case studies of how to put these, uh, these, these, this theory actually into practice. That sounds great. And uh, in fact, if you want to go, and this is to our listeners, you could use the code SHIFTER, uh, shifter uh, and you go under Partner Pass, and you will actually get a discount. So, uh, so you should use this. Uh, you should use this code and get a discount and go to see near. That's uh, is a world uh, recognized uh, uh, thinker and. Behavioral psychology, and you actually, uh, you your book has actually it's been a best on the best selling list of Wall Street Journal. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. Yeah, and uh, you also have the the blog that we we should um, uh, encourage people to check out. It's uh, nearandfar.com, uh, and you are also uh, on uh, TechCrunch uh, and uh, Inc. Uh, magazine and Psychology Today. Right. Um, so, Nir, uh, I would really, w- one more time, thank you very much uh, for uh, uh, taking the time to to give us some insights uh, into behavioral psychology. And uh, we will see you in Oslo. Sounds great. Terrific. Looking forward to seeing you in Oslo.